Dotnet Rocks episode 639 with guest Udi Dahan, recorded live Tuesday, February 15th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey man, it's Carl and Richard. Welcome to .NET Rocks, man. What is this, the Cheech and Chong episode? <laughs> is that where we're going? Dave's uh, not I was, here. I, I had an earache this morning and I was trying to go to school and I... My dad was uh, yelling at me to go to school. Earache my eye. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I was singing a crazy song, too. I'm all right. I'm good. Um, snow's finally melting around here. It's pretty good. And um, although the recycle bin is now full of ice and water. Nice. So, you know, the, they don't they don't actually pick those up and throw them in the truck when they're full of ice and water. You yeah, sort of have to yeah, deal with that. Hey, anyway, let's uh, get into Better Know a Framework. All right. Our little slice of uniqueness here on .NET Rocks. Yeah, and you've been on an interesting bent lately. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see where you're going to go today. Well, and um, lately, things have just popped up while I'm writing code. Right. So this uh, one comes from Link, and it's uh, enumerable.average. Oh, so on the enumerable class, there's a bunch of methods, mm-hmm. and uh, anything that is um, enumerable has uh, the ability to average data. Now, here's the thing about it, though. You can only average lists of certain things, obviously numbers. Right. So decimals, uh, a nullable of decimal, interesting, uh, double uh, in nullable of double, so you have nullables as well. Int thirty two, int sixty four, and single, and uh, and then it goes up from there. What you don't see is int sixteen or short. Oh yeah, or unsigned. And I'm I'm wondering why is that? Yeah, it is interesting. I wonder why. I have been working with um, data sets, uh, not you know system.data.dataset, but sets of uh, uh, short integers when dealing with wave files. I've been doing some interesting audio stuff, which we should probably do a show on just on this project because it's sure. really cool. But anyway, so I'm dealing with wave file data, and I, you know, wave files are essentially arrays of shorts, and every short is a sample, a 16-bit sample. And usually they're unsigned, so they swing from, you know, the negative uh, range to the positive range. And zero, of course, is silence. So... Wouldn't that mean they're signed? They are signed. Right. Yeah. But int32s are signed also, and Mm -hmm. they are supported in average. However, int16, not supported. Ah, I see. So you ran into this the hard way. So I ran into it the hard way. You were trying to write some link expressions around wave files, and it wasn't letting you. It wasn't even a link expression. It was just, you know, I have a list of int 16s, and I want to call the average method on it to return the average. And, oh, no, it doesn't work. So there you go. There you go. Hey, Richard, is uh, somebody talking to us today? Well, we get, you know, we get a fair bit of email, but uh, I pulled out an interesting one for you. 
Because some, you know, we get lots of email we can't read. Sometimes it's not appropriate. Sometimes <laughs> they're very long. Yeah. And uh, the email, I want a mug, yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, no, okay. not going to work. Be a little but, more creative. But here's an email that works. Uh, with no preamble, just go straight at it. I was listening to this episode 634, and that was the one we were talking to uh, Andrew and Alfred about education. Right. And I didn't hear a mention of patterns and practices. Mm. I think education and patterns and practices would be an awesome goal as well for students or self-learners everywhere. I struggle with things I learned incorrectly all the time. I was self-taught and have been a professional programmer with little guidance for the past 12 years, and I work very hard to learn the patterns when I have time, but it's very challenging to fix bad practices. Mm. I think that starting children and beginning programmers with good habits is one of the best things we can give them. And that's from David Ovitz. Uh, you know, David, I don't disagree. Well, maybe I do disagree with you because you got to skip back another couple of shows to when we were talking to Doc Norton hmm. about developing his career. Because Doc brought up this very valid point that patterns and practices don't mean anything until you sort of have some fundamental skills. That's right. And, and the challenge, of course, is this stuff is so abstract that first you need to provide a framework for a student and the key is to not lose them in the process right. of educating them on the on these concepts. It's like showing someone a map of some terrain and when they've never been outside. You know, they just That's have right. no context for it to mean anything. Not that I mean that you should teach people bad practices, but that right. you have to have a certain number of skills before talking about patterns and practices make sense to anyone. We really got to know what objects are, what properties and methods are. And get a little, uh, get a little, get our feet wet, just messing around with them a bit first. Yeah, until you know the why, the how, I don't think means much to you. But it is a good point, and that is that when you do find yourself in the educational process at the point where, all right, let's write some real code, you know, let's do it right. Yeah, yeah. I think I, that's. I think really it's a very interesting saying. discussion, maybe for another show, just on when exactly does it make sense to insert the knowledge of patterns and practices into the curriculum. Yeah. Either way, you don't, I don't have to agree with you if you get a mug. David, the mug's on its way to you. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. And with that, Richard, let's introduce our guest, Udi Dahan. Udi Dahan, the software simplest, is a recognized .net expert and a member of both the Microsoft Architects and Technologists Councils. Udi provides clients all over the world with training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services specializing in service-oriented, scalable, and secure .NET architecture design and web services. He's a member of the International Association of Software Architects, a frequent conference presenter, a Dr. Dobbs-sponsored expert on web services, SOA and XML, and a regularly published author. Udi can be contacted via his blog, www.udidahan.com. That's U-D-I-D-A-H-A-N.com. Add to that list uh, a prior guest on .NET Rocks. So when we oh, have the party and we invite all the uh, the guests who have ever been on .NET Rocks, you will be there. Excellent. I'm not saying we're having one. Just <laughs> if and when that ever happens, you'll get an invite. How you doing? Wonderful. I'm good. I'm good. Now, I'm are you, busy. <laughs> yeah, busy. Are you getting any sleep? Because you recently and your wife had a baby. Yes, that's right. Um, well, since this is our fourth, um, we're not new to the whole baby thing. So you're really not getting uh, any sleep, are you? Um, no, actually, I'm getting sleep. It's my it's my wife that's not getting any sleep. Oh. Um, 
Oh, well. it, it's a division of labor when, when you got that many kids kind of juggling them around. So Yeah, you're playing zone defense now, right? Because you you're outnumbered. <laughs> you just got to keep kicking them back into the pool. That's uh, right. Pretty much. <laughs> the goalie. But I, I, Udi, I appreciate you making lots of babies because we need more smart kids. Yeah, Nolan Bushnell's right. <laughs> you're taking one for the team. Take you're making one for smart the team. babies. That's right. Procreate. Oh, man. Well, anyway, we're here to talk about CQRS, and that stands for um, Cooked Quartered uh, Ribs with Sauce, right? <laughs> well, it could. I mean, <laughs> I it, 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 it would probably be a, a, a better tasting acronym. So, Command Query Responsibility Segregation. Now, what is that? Is that a list of things that it that uh, that you do with this architecture pattern, or or is that supposed to be one sentence that doesn't make sense? So uh, CQRS, just so that we don't spend all our time, you know, uh, spelling it out all the time, is um, like you said, it's an architectural pattern or approach, if you will, that uh, has a very basic foundation which is um, take the responsibility of commands, take the responsibility of queries, and separate them out as much as you can throughout your architecture. Okay. Um, Where the the basic idea is that, um, even from a business perspective, I'm not even going to talk about technology, uh, the way people think about commands and the way they think about, about queries is different. The expectation of consistency is different when I'm looking at the results of a screen that I've just performed a query on. I expect the information to be reasonably up to date, but I know that somebody else might have changed things on me while I'm still looking at the screen. Yeah. However, when I submit a command into the system, that's the point in time where I say, no, actually, I want all the business logic, all the business rules, everything to be consistent. And there also is a, a very big difference in the nature of the rules and the calculations that run when we're entering new data into the system and when we're pulling back information. In CQRS, all it is is sort of a, a, a long-winded way of saying, let's treat these two things differently. Now, um, a couple of things that jump to mind. When you say command, that's a very general term, but in specifically I mean, we all know what a query is, but I guess a command would be sort of like an insert command or an update command or delete command, right, versus a select query. Is this what we're talking about? Well, from a technological perspective, if the set of operations in our system were create, read, update, delete, Mm -hmm. then it would be accurate to say that CQRS would say put the reads on one side and the creates, updates, and deletes on the other side, okay. and, um, and and that will give you a better system. Now, a lot of people have been talking about using CQRS for the purposes of increased scalability, and that that absolutely is a benefit of using CQRS. But like a lot of the patterns that that we're familiar with, it's actually been around for for quite some time. Mm. And in the context of CRUD operations, we could look at this as just uh, kind of the, the standard way of scaling out a database. Okay. You have hold, hold one on, hold on. right I got, master. I got to stop you here before we get too far into this, and I want to go there. But 
Um, so obviously, number one thing I'm getting from you is that this is uh, not just applicable to databases, but it is an architectural pattern. Number two, it seems like this um, sort of separation came out of uh, a culture where these two things were treated the same. And what were the problems there that that uh, the separation and segregation of responsibilities here is trying to solve? So the so I, I, as you said, you know, it came out of an environment where a lot of these things were treated uh, or, or were handled together. Now, um, I'd say that probably from a somewhat historical perspective, even though CQRS uh, is relatively new, it, it did come out of the domain-driven design, uh, DDD community, where the, the context or, or the problem was that uh, people were building uh, relatively large uh, monolithic domain models that handled everything in the system. All the creates, reads, updates, deletes, all the commands, all the queries were done through this single monolithic piece of business logic that did everything. And just to, 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 to articulate that point a little bit more, um, start from the most basic level, what we see is that in our domain model, we may have a class called customer, and that customer class is involved in queries. In other words, when we want to perform some kind of query in the system where we get the customer's first name, last name, uh, lifetime value, which is a summation of all the orders that they've performed in the system, mm. their status, the last time they've submitted a complaint, which is a join off of the complaint table. Mm. And, you know, we're all familiar with those uh, gigantic queries that join you know, 15 different entities inside right. them. So we see that customer entity taking part in those kinds of queries. And also we see the, the same customer entity taking part of the process of submitting a new order where we need to validate that uh, this customer is in good standing and is paying their bills before we accept a new order from them right. and all sorts of other information that we need from the customer. For example, their shipping address, where we need to send the products to. So that's the example of a command mm. where we see the exact same class that is supporting both these commands and queries off of them. I see. Now, the problem here that, that we ran into was that it's hard for a class to do to fulfill both of these responsibilities well. It tended to become quite a bit bigger and more maintainable than we'd like. So there was a maintainability problem that was created. Is that because and the the complexity goes up if you're um, you know, things that need to be reflected if it's a command versus if it's a query. Uh, there's a lot of if-then logic in there. Is that sort of I'd the idea? I'd say it's not just in terms of the internal logic that was complex, but also how many dependencies it had oh. with all sorts of other classes. I see. Because, you know, the the customer needs to know about the orders, and it needs to know about the complaints, and it needs to know about this. And yeah. you started seeing these tentacles going all over the place. So it was there was internal complexity, but also there there was this uh, you know these tentacles between all the classes, a growing number of dependencies. Where changing one of them broke a whole lot of others. I see. 
And those dependencies aren't as necessary when you're doing a, a query. Is that the idea than when you're doing a command? Or well, I vice think that versa? a different set of dependencies is likely needed yeah. when performing various queries. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, queries don't necessarily need all of the information about the customer. They right. need, you know, a first name, last name, you know, some of the highlights, and right. then they go get information from a bunch of other entities. Right. Not to mention the fact that, you know, at your database layer, you may have, you know, abstracted away a lot of that with stored procedures or views or, or the like. Well, that's one of the areas, like I said, where um, the, 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 the fact that CQRS came out of a DDD environment uh, made itself felt most because in the DDD community, um, there is a certain uh, frowning upon the use of stored procedures and views mm. uh, for anything, yeah. pretty much, where the idea is all the logic that you have to do in your system, and you know, even from the most trivial kind of logic to the more complex, uh, is considered to be part of the uh, domain model. Okay. And the domain model is really sort of a, a, another way that people describe their business logic. Yeah. And as such, they wanted to keep it all in memory. They wanted to keep it all as plain old C-sharp objects. Mm. Uh, you, you guys probably uh, remember that discussion uh, around the entity framework and hibernate thing about yeah. uh, you know the, the, this whole idea of persistence ignorance and mm -hmm. having a very clean domain model. So, so that's to a large extent where it came from, where the same classes were used and reused uh, both in queries and in commands. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. So you know all about the power of ASP.NET MVC, but you might be in need of some good tools to enhance your productivity. Well, our friends at Telerik just shipped the latest release of the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC, 18 jQuery-based native MVC extensions. Now you can enhance productivity by remaining in control of your views without having to write all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript by hand. Did I mention that the Telerik MVC extensions are also free and open source? Plus, now you can check all MVC online demos in both ASPX and Razor views, since the extensions offer full support for ASP.NET MVC 3 and the Razor view engine. Download your free copy today at Telerik.com slash free MVC. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. When we're talking about um, segregating these responsibilities, are we talking, uh, is it mostly applicable to the data layer, or how far-reaching is this architectural pattern in terms of implementation? Well, it, it can be very far. Uh, it, it could go so far as to uh, cut the database in, in, into two pieces as well. Oh, really? Yeah. So we're not only just talking about the business logic layer or the data access layer, we're talking about even the, the, the database itself, where one of the justifications for that is, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, yeah, the, the, the topic of consistency, where we're saying that, well, when I'm performing a query, um, even if I actually went to the master database, you know, the, the single source of truth, by the time I get the data back and put it on a user's screen, somebody else could have already changed it. 
So it seems like a lot of effort to go through and uh, has a, a fair amount of performance penalties uh, to go and do that query against the master 100% transactionally consistent database. Right, and this this goes and, back to us uh, um, an SOA tenant, which is to separate the databases for reporting and for transactions. I'm not even sure that I call that an SOA tenant, but it, it definitely is good practice. Yeah, and anybody who's who's had to build relatively large systems has run into the performance problems of doing everything against the database, and has probably started caching in memory anyway. So. Already at that level, you could say that we're already doing some kind of query separation by serving queries off of an in-memory cache. In, in a lot of systems, even if we don't look at it as a you know, really broad architectural pattern, oh, that's just caching, everybody does caching. But one of the things that we also notice, and again, it's, it, a lot of these patterns are, are merely just a uh, a stronger uh, formalization of things that we've all been doing and are, are considered good practice. So the, one of the things that comes out is, is that the structure of the data that we put in our in-memory caches tends to be different than the structure of the data in our database. Right? We optimize sure. it for queries. Sure. We create structures because that's kind of the whole point of caching. It's right. to make the queries go faster. So often you don't need that third normal form structure mm. in your cache. Similarly, when looking at it from uh, it's called a, a separate reporting database or a separate query database, you know, absolutely, you can have a separate data structure over there. So it's mm. a separate copy of the data, similar to a cache. It is um, not 100% consistent. In, just like a cache, it's a little bit behind the master database. Right. But it's close enough that for the the use of users that are looking at this, you know, when I'm looking at the list of customers, it's good enough. Right. So the next step when talking about the query side of thing was to take it a little bit further and say, well, often in our queries, we have to do all sorts of calculations and aggregations. Now, why should we have to do all of these calculations and aggregations at the instant that the user performs the query? If the underlying data is stale, it's cached, couldn't we do the calculations offline when we're populating the cache? The result would be the same, right? Yeah. And then that's where we get into a data model that, again, diverges more and more from our master database third normal form single source of truth story. And from there we start saying, well, do I really need to have you know a full customer entity in there with all of its fields? Or maybe what I want is, let's call it a, a view model rather than a domain model. What I want is a view model. The way that the data is shown on the screen, why don't I just store it in my cache exactly that way. And I'll do all of the queries and the calculations and the aggregations in the background and then just populate that cache with the data as it needs to be shown. So we're simplifying the queries because, in essence, we're preparing them ahead of time so that when the user actually wants to see the data, 
well, it's it's already ready for them. You just grab it from the cache and you stick it on the screen. Now, whether that cache happens to be an in-memory cache or it happens to be a cache that's written to disk or whether the cache happens to be stored in a SQL Express or a SQL Server database really is an implementation choice. Architecturally, they're equivalent. Now, Udi, typically when I deal with caching, I'm, you know, say we look at the ASP.NET caching with its cache objects, and they're largely structured in the form that I'm going to use to render a page. Uh, When I get a command, when some data update takes place, the the typical thing that happens is you just destroy the cache object, which means the next time you query it, it repopulates that. Are you? I'm just looking at your diagrams and the way you're thinking about this. You seem like you're avoiding destroying the cache object. You're going to update them rather than re- rebuild them. So that's part of the, the area where the CQRS as an architectural approach takes things a, a step further in that uh, we want to be a little bit more explicit in how we talk to our users about the data that they're looking at. So given that we're going to be showing users data that isn't 100% up to the microsecond accurate, it's going to be stale. Why don't we tell our users how old it is? So if you're looking at the list of customers, and I say, and I tell you, this is the list of customers as it was 10 minutes ago. Right. The fact that some other user you know, this second changed, you know, the phone number of one of those customers. The the information that you're looking at on the screen, you know, this is the data of these customers as it was 10 minutes ago, is still correct. So that's yeah. the place where CQRS starts moving into how we present information to the users and a little bit of UI design and starts making time visible to users. Because, hmm. quite, you know, let's face it, in a multi-user system, uh, when things happened matters. Sure. Now imagine getting a statement from your bank telling you, you know, your balance was $1,000. And you're like, really? When was it $1,000? And your bank says, well, why don't you click refresh and see if it changes? <laughs> yeah. That's not a very good user experience. That's pretty good. But I also like the idea that it's up to the user to decide if that's stale and force going all the way back to the master to populate. Right. So that's what I said about making things more explicit. Right. So it's not just architecture and technology. Here we're going all the way to our user interface, saying we need to be a little bit more explicit there as well. And once we do that, once we have that discussion, then we can actually sit down with the business and say, do you really want us to destroy the cache when something changes? And once we've told the truth, in other words, we tell them this is the data as it was 10 minutes ago, this is the data as it was five minutes ago, often the answer is, no, I'm perfectly happy continuing to look at the data as it was five minutes ago. And one of the important things that we get from this is is a new set of requirements that tell us how fresh does the data need to be on each screen? Because it may be different. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're building decision support systems. Users use our systems to support them in making decisions. And different kind of decisions require different freshness of data to support them. Maybe we should have a discussion about that with our business stakeholders. And maybe we should tell our users exactly how fresh the data is 
so that they don't make the wrong decision. That's you know, that's sort of the corollary of CQRS, of, of where it leads us to. And what's the corollary? It's that bit about uh, taking time into account, presenting it to our users, and understanding mm-hmm. that different query screens will require different freshness of data. We can't just use the, the, the common caching invalidation algorithms where something changes, okay, destroy the cache. Right. Or vice versa, everything in the cache is the same age, or the age of things in the cache is non-deterministic, and we don't really know it. It can change all the time. And we well, there's, and there's no reason for us not to know how old the cache is. We know the moment we created it. We just don't necessarily record it. Right. A lot of this stuff is easy to do. It's, right. not, it's not writing tons and tons of code. It's just adding those little bits and pieces around the edges that help us solve business problems better. And and do you see a cache per screen, or how shared does the cache end up being this way? Well, you see, that's one of the things that, as I mentioned before, different screens may require different freshness. Right. So when I'm looking at the list of customers whose name begins with the letter A, you know, page three of those results. I don't require very fresh information. I could probably work with data that is an hour old when I'm just looking for a customer by name because their names don't change that quickly. Right. However, once I find the customer, you know, I'm on the phone with the customer right now and I'm looking at that customer's details an hour old is not good enough. I need something that is, you know, much much fresher, possibly right. maybe maximum a minute old or 30 seconds old or something like that. So you're right in saying that the the screen is significant towards the age of the cache, much more so than the entity. And that's where we need to depart from from a lot of the standard caching approaches that are very entity centric rather than view or screen-centric. Hmm. Yeah, it is a different way. We, we tend to create caches around uh, the, the given view, but not necessarily around uh, a given screen. Well, I'd say that we tend to create caches or, and put entities inside them. Right. And that if we've already got you know customer number 123 in the cache, we're not going to put another one in there. No. And And that's the the mistake because the business is telling us no actually we do expect to see two pieces two different pieces of information on two different screens for the same customer number one two three mm-hmm. but that and so that leans towards the idea of of cash objects per screen correct but I, I'd use the words uh, in CQRS we use the term view model right uh, because we're saying you know each screen will likely have a separate view model. And while there may be some fields which are the same in different view model objects, the view model objects themselves are distinct. Right. Now, how do you deal with data being updated on the master store independently of the application and trying to roll that update be synchronized with the cache? So in... In the fact that CQRS is an architectural approach, mm-hmm. it takes ownership also of how the master data gets updated. Right. Okay. 
So anything that needs to update the master data in some way is called a command. Master data doesn't get updated from God knows where without anybody knowing about it. Um, thankfully, uh, ever since the SQL Server team decided to take notification services away from us, yes, <laughs> um, that, that, that was a, a nice trick, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, um, sorry. it had its so issues. It, so for that reason, uh, CQR says any data that's coming into that master database is coming in via a command. Right. And then we have a propagation mechanism, um, which is often in the form of events, that after a command has been performed successfully, an event is published saying you know, the data that has been changed. And then we have something that's listening to that event, which ultimately updates uh, our, our cache, our view model objects that are stored in the cache, uh, slash the view model database, if it's persistent. So ultimately, it's a venting mechanism. Yeah, this still feels very greenfield, Udi. I've got a bunch of databases out there, and I'm wanting to build new apps with CQRS, but I'm going to end up with databases updated from old apps. Yeah, I was going to say that this is uh, seems like an implementation that you would imp would uh, something you would implement right out of the box. Well, it definitely is easier when you're designing uh, a brand new system uh, and you have full control over everything, and you have no legacy constraints to use it. Um, and the 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 common solutions to, to problems like that, like I said, ever since they took away notification services is to, to use things like triggers um, to, to get notified at a database level when something has happened um, and, and hook our way out from there. The alternative is to go and talk, uh, talk about maybe patching those other systems that are putting the data in there to have them publish some events. Right. But yeah, mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a legacy environment. Um, things things aren't easy, and uh, integration is is always challenging. And part of the goal of CQRS is to prevent us from creating more of those problems. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over eleven hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight Four, or fourteen hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint two thousand ten, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Well, one of the things that seems interesting here is because you've separated the write task from the published task, I could almost go into an old application and in sort of an aspect-oriented way say, anytime you're doing any of these commands, you need to pop these up as as events to the, the publish handler. That's right. So again, that depends on our organization and whether we have the ability to change that code base. Uh, if we're talking about uh, commercial off-the-shelf applications that we've bought, we may not have that ability uh, as much as if it were an application that we built on an older technology or something like that. So there, there's you know, a lot of gray areas in there of, of what can be done. Sure. And it does seem like you, you're not really dependent on, you've really stripped a lot of the sophistication in modern databases out in this 
architectural model. So you could pretty much store in anything. Uh, that's uh, that's what a lot of people have have started doing uh, as they've applied CQRS. As they kind of look at it and say, well. Um, I'm not leaning so much on the database's stronger capabilities. Uh, maybe I don't need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, for SQL Server licenses. Maybe I can use something simpler. And we see a lot of the the NoSQL crowd, um, the, the non-relational database people saying, uh, you see, we told you so. We told you that uh, NoSQL was better than, than SQL. Uh, but I'd look at it more the other way around, that CQRS gives you an architectural framework to design your system in such a way that you can make appropriate use of NoSQL databases rather than trying to shoehorn them into every application that you build. Sure. Because uh, I've had lots of clients come to me and said, look, we did this NoSQL thing because they told us it would be scalable. But now our system is inconsistent from a right. business perspective, and how do we solve that problem? Yeah, it's super that's, fast, just wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what they say computers are. They found a, a way to, to increase um, orders of magnitude the amount of human error that used to be done by hand. <laughs> right. Yeah, one per. Yeah, it takes a person to screw up an invoice. Only a computer will screw up a hundred thousand of them. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the concern I have of this coming, I'm putting on my DBA hat now is I'm now depending on the developer to maintain transactional integrity, data consistency, uh, all of the relationship model, like all of that's now in the app. It's not in the database at all, mm -hmm. which if, you know, which means if you've named everybody John Smith, I really have no way to stop you. Right. So... That's part of the uh, that's called the the, the philosophy uh, that you know was very popular for for a large number of years. You know the data is king, uh, the database is the single source of truth, and those kinds of things. Right. How, however, what we see is very common in systems today is there is business logic in code outside the database. Yes. In which case, when we look at the, the idea of consistency, not from you know, a database relational perspective of consistency, but from the business perspective, you know, business consistency means that the data is correct. Mm -hmm. The database cannot fulfill that correctness requirement by itself once there is business logic outside the database. Simple fact. Yep. And this is a battle we've been having for ages that we then you try and cram more and more logic into your T SQL, into your store procedures and so forth, and it's just not rich enough to handle all the rules. And for right. those who missed it, check out the uh SmackDown <laughs> with Ted Neward and uh and uh Oren Eni a couple of years ago where we went into all of these issues. Right. So ultimately we're saying the database cannot be responsible for the business correctness of the data that it holds once there is business logic outside the database. Right. Ergo, the DBA can't be responsible for what's going on at that level. So yeah, 
it's it's something that is it's almost a truism at this point in time that you know anytime there's a problem you get a DBA and you get a developer and both of them look at it together and yep. you know that's fine the CQRS like I said it's just taking a lot of the things that have been happening and saying you know let, let's call it for what it is and and stop trying to force our architectures into uh, let's call it uh, best practices of 20 years ago of you know, data is king and the, the DBA is king and all these kinds of things and say, well, you know what, we're a team here and if we don't all pull our weight, then it's not going to work. So, yeah, uh, the developer is responsible and the DBA is responsible and both them together and have to uh, and, and they have to sit down together with the business people and say, well, let's have a discussion about what this idea of correctness is. Because, you know, the, the, the common answer of the business when you say, well, how much consistency do you need is 100% all the time. Right. And, you know, it's a very easy answer to give. However, and you know, this whole idea of CQRS and eventual consistency has everybody up in arms. And, you know, there's big arguments back and forth about eventual consistency. You know, let, let's just clear, uh, clear matters once and for all. If you are doing any kind of caching in your system, you are not 100% consistent all yep. the time. You're speaking Period. to, you know, from your yep. your mouth, my friend, that's always the truth, right? We've been subverting consistency for years in the name of performance. Right. And it's been okay. But once we call it for what it is and say eventual consistency, all of a sudden everybody's, oh, no, 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 no. We need everything to be consistent all the time. Right. Like, God, what about your caches? What about your nightly data dumps? What about your ETLs? Yo, what about all that? Oh, that. Oh, we weren't talking about that. <laughs> like, well, you know, the business looks at all of it together. So why shouldn't we? And, and let's start making better decisions based on the real requirements rather than on these uh, slogans. You know, four legs good, two legs bad. DBAs rule, developers drool, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, it, and and CQRS is, is just a way of saying here are the these are the questions to ask when going to do that. And when you think about it from a business perspective, say something like retail, the average retail shop transactionally is not consistent until the end of the business day. You know, that's what cashing out the tills all about mm -hmm. is actually the reconciliation. You don't become consistent till the day's over. Well, you know, and, but and then there's the whole accounting of inventory. Yeah. Right? Which is maybe uh, monthly. It, anything that manages stuff in the real world tends to be eventually consistent. Right. Okay. And even things that are uh, purely virtual to a large extent, um, and a lot of people say, well, that couldn't possibly work uh, when dealing with um, really critical data like money. Banks couldn't possibly do that. Like, really? Have you not worked at a bank? They're all about mm. eventual consistency because yep. that's how they make their money. Do you think that there's been a sort of a, a shift in thinking about, um, as you, as Richard was saying before, you know, and you guys were both saying, the the focus has been on for years since the beginning of the computer revolution, performance, 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 scalability, 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 you know, at the cost of management. 
you think there's when did this sort of look to uh the future in saying okay well it's fast enough now we need to become a little more stable and a little more uh smart about how we do these things when did this start happening do you think well i'm not sure that i'd say that that we've always been in this you know make it faster more scalable at the cost of management or at the cost of writing more code uh, but ultimately, you know, the, the, this demand for for faster is because uh, those are the business needs. You know, we have more users. We're yeah. managing more data. We and need the to hardware. respond faster to events uh, that are happening in the real world. Um, so, so those are the requirements, and and that's where a lot of that came from. However, what I would like to say is that. Um, my experience as a consultant, and I've been around the globe many times, that the way that it's been done has sacrificed consistency too much without actually telling the business uh, what trade-offs have been made. Mm. Yeah, it's almost a lack of honesty, isn't it? Just admitting, hey, we cheat. <laughs> so... Um, you know, the, 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 there's been a lack of trust between IT and business for many years. Really? And probably will continue I many ha years. I hadn't in the noticed future. this. <laughs> right. So, um, so, so I, I don't want to start getting in, into the blame game here. However, one of the things is that um, a lot of demands for consistency are not true demands. Rather, it is uh, a developer slash DBA hearing business requirements for consistency and interpreting them as using transactions and databases. Whereas when business people are talking about consistency in their language, often what they're describing, you know, like you were saying before, Richard, is a business process that at the end of the business process is consistent. Right. but isn't necessarily consistent at every instant during the business process. Sure. In which case, it's more appropriate to model it as a kind of long-running workflow rather than as a single transaction against a database. So I'm not sure that I'd say it's, it's a lack of honesty because uh, you know, that, that's a, a scary non-productive route to go, but rather it's more a function of a misinterpreting of the business requirement saying they told us consistency, we use transactions, when the language should have been more along the lines of, well, let's not talk about so much about the end result. Let's talk about the business process from their eyes and map that to long-running workflows that are consistent at the end. And after doing this with you know business stakeholders in verticals you know, like retail and banking and insurance and telecom and you know just about every single one under the sun, uh, I got to tell you, every time I sit down and talk with the business people, they're surprised. Say, what you mean it doesn't work like that? I'm like, yes. no, it doesn't. Not in your systems today. It doesn't. Not really. Today. No. <laughs> um, then how does it work? Like it's all done in, in, in one big go against the database. Like, oh, so that's why it's so slow. 
Well, Udi, this is about where we have to leave it. Um, is there anything else on your mind that you want to uh, say before we sign off? Well, I, I would like to, to provide some tips for people that are looking to uh, looking for technology to support them in using CQRS. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned was the ability to publish events from one part of the system to another part of the system or from external applications, uh, like we mentioned before, that are talking to databases to our system. And uh, there are multiple open source tools that do that. And Service Bus is a project that, that I started writing about four or five years ago and uh, now is used all over the world and supports a lot of companies that are doing CQRS. There are other um, event or enterprise service buses like this, including Mass Transit and Rhino Service Bus. Um, and, you know, the open source ones in the .NET space are also commercial ones. So I'd say if you are looking at uh, using CQRS as an architectural approach on your project, look at using one of these frameworks to help you out. Don't go and build your own. It's uh, There's a lot more to it in terms of making sure that your transaction boundaries and your threading boundaries and the queuing and all that stuff's done right. So take a look at some of those. They will really, really help you in getting uh, your CQRS effort off the ground the right way. Fantastic. Udi Dahan, thank you, and congratulations on your new child. Thank you guys very much. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a